Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan, joined by CNBC's host of Tech Check. That would be Deirdre Bosa. Debo, welcome back to the pod. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. We got so much to go through. Big cap tech stuff, the rally that has been emerging over the last week and a half or so since interest rates have come in. We still have a bunch of tech earnings. We have bankruptcies. There's a whole host of stuff going on in the tech world. But I got to tell you, once we get through all that, I had a great conversation with very dear friends of mine, co-CEOs of Casa Comos Brands Group. That would be the maker of the most beautiful tequila that exists on the planet, and that would be Comos Tequila. I know, Debo, that you have had that. Would That would be Joe Marchese of Human Ventures and his co-CEO, Richard Betts, who is the maker, former master SOM, maker of Como's Tequila. So we go through the orange origin story there and really what goes into making that fine product and the business that they are building. So stick around for that conversation. You needed some tequila for this week. I did. To get through it. I will tell you, we, we recorded that. <laughs> there we, was so much tech news. We recorded that on Friday morning at 10 a.m. and we did drink, I think, a quarter of a bottle of Como's while we were doing that. And, uh, you know, I guess it's always tequila time somewhere. Wow. It, it, it's interesting. I got two texts this morning within 15 minutes of each other. One is from somebody in the business and another is somebody who's in media but is very interested in the business or is interested in investing. One of them said, here comes the end of the year panic tech buying. The other one said, today's that day in November I realized I'm sitting on a bunch of cash and now I have to plow it into a bunch of funds or stocks and just kind of sit on it and, and hope that they work out over the next few years. And it's that sort of rally that we're in right now. The NASDAQ 100 is up over you know 9% or so. It looks like in a straight line over the last call it week and a half. The S&P is up about 7% or so. Some of the things that I'm seeing on my fact set screen, I'm seeing Datadog up nearly 30%. Snowflake up in sympathy, up 10%. You know, MongoDB up 50%. There's stuff going on. Global Foundries was up 8% this morning off of some commentary that they had was not too dissimilar than what Taiwan Semi had said and maybe Intel said about stabilization in smartphones and PCs. So it seems like all of a sudden on the other side of earnings season D, we're starting to see people pile into stocks that they were selling indiscriminately just a few weeks ago at the start of earnings season. Yeah, it feels like we got through mega cap earnings season and there was no major disaster and people were looking, as you say, for an excuse to buy into year end. However, we raised the question earlier this week, is it based in fundamentals? When you look at the mega cap tech earnings, yeah, profitability was great, but growth, there was some yellow flags here, muted holiday quarter outlook for Apple and Amazon as well, though nobody seemed to care about that. Google Cloud, so Tesla throwing cold water on its growth plan. The profitability is there, but that's going to narrow with the rest of profitability for the S&P 500 in the years ahead and growth. There was just some reason to be cautious. But like you said, Dan, 
people want an excuse to buy now. And, and it's not just mega cap. It's the sort of other level down. Microsoft is about one and a half percent from its all-time high that it made in July. And we've spent a lot of time talking about Microsoft over the last couple of quarters and what the expectations were and what they were able to deliver. The 15% peak to trough decline that we had from the July highs to the recent lows. And now you have this stock working its way back. And what's interesting to me about this is actually dragging up a lot of other mega cap stocks. Amazon um, is approaching its 52-week highs. Adobe just made a new 52-week high. Meta, which has traded very well over the last few months when a lot of its mega cap peers were struggling a little bit at times, had just been consolidating. That one's getting back there. Even Alphabet, which you just mentioned, that did have disappointing growth. That stock is on its way to filling in its earnings gap. Remember that one was down 9% in a day following its earnings. It it just feels like it, it, it might be a bit of a chase and there's just this indiscriminate, maybe it's just that the 10 year yield has come in from 5% to 4.55. You're seeing investors maybe not so concerned at this moment about valuation. Yeah, that's a great point because it was really the 10 year yield that was driving a lot of that bearishness before. So coming down a few basis points, maybe that, that could be helping the case. But as you said, seasonally, this is a good period for stocks. So that's in play too. Here, here's a headline and this just hit Bloomberg. So you're going to probably read it in the next hour and I'll bet we'll be talking about it on the shows later today. But BlackRock's $100 billion model makers are going big on mega caps. And basically the crux of the story is that there's much greater certainty about earnings revisions, let's say higher on mega cap tech stocks in particular, the balance sheets, you know, the whole drill. And you could say this probably at any point because there's been so much volatility in so many other parts of the markets. Just look at energy, look at transports, look at financials. The list goes on and on. And a lot of those sectors, while they bounced a lot, they trade very poorly. They're down a lot more from their highs than, say, the major tech indices and the like here. And so the point is, is that they'd rather go for what feels like the certainty into year end. And we have a little less than two months into year end. And you know how a little marking and, and all that stuff goes. And if Microsoft is about to make a new high and it does that, then Apple's back on its horse. You, you know the drill. And then we're really sitting and on pins and needles and we are waiting for NVIDIA's report and guide on November 21st. Now I'm going to contradict myself because while the big tech companies did raise a few yellow flags going into the next year of growth, that growth is still very garpy, growth at a reasonable price. And then you also, if you're buying into the mega caps, you have basically an option on the huge AI boom. And what we saw from OpenAI at the developer conference yesterday is just adding more fuel to that hype cycle. And if you think that the mega caps are going to be the ones to benefit, certainly Microsoft, which has a 49% ownership stake, then you think that, okay, those growth numbers could actually go higher. These are mature businesses with a really interesting play on the next new technology also. All right, let, let's take a step back because I think that's a great point. And, and you were reporting on this on TechCheck, I think on Monday, you were talking about this virtuous cycle, right? So you've had these mega cap tech stocks that started with Microsoft investing in OpenAI, but we've had Amazon and Alphabet invest in Anthropic. And part of those deals are very large cloud contracts, right? For the aforementioned investors, right? So your point, I think that you were making is that they've massively de-risked the valuation at which they're investing in these companies, and you and I have spent a lot of time talking about it over the last few months or so, when you are minting 30, 40, 50 billion, or in the case of OpenAI, I think they just raised some capital in the secondary at 80 billion or something like that. It's really hard to see how that comes to the public market. And that is going to be an equity that can perform well at some point. But that being said, if you are the investor and you're hedging your bets a little bit by A, owning the equity, but also getting these contracts back for your services, right? It seems 
seems like a good do because if any of these companies become the next trillion dollar company and you've basically have this investment, but also you are like attached to the hip as far as their growth, it seems like a pretty decent way to approach a, a, an emerging technology that has the potential to be very disruptive over the next decade or two. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is just the cloud usage that is part of these deals that big tech is signing with the generative AI companies, OpenAI and Anthropic is so key to it because it basically means revenue coming back in the door that they are in a way bankrolling <laughs> and they have these huge cash piles, right? That they can do so. And, and then I also think that's an interesting way to look at the slowdown in growth in the hyperscalers cloud, cloud units, right? It, is it being further masked by all of the compute power that AI companies? So that's something to watch going forward. But these are just great deals for the mega caps. And it makes it very hard, by the way, for VCs here in San Francisco or New York or Silicon Valley to get in because the mega caps are just inflating the valuations of these companies. They get to partake in the upside because they hold equity stakes, but then they also get money coming back in the door to their cloud units through revenue. So quite a masterstroke, but I will say something that could warrant a look by the regulators at some point. Listen, there's a couple ways to think about it. These companies have tons of cash. They generate a ton of cash. These are the obviously the ones making the investments. And if, let's say, two years from now, they write these things down to, let's say, nothing because, let's say, Anthropic doesn't become a thing, right? There's no real commercialization of these products or, or whatever it is, then it, it's a rounding error. People will forget about it. And they will have already had the revenue coming in from unprofitable companies that they invested in that went under. And the other correlation I would make or, or analogy is that in the late 90s, a lot of these like telecom companies, there was a lot of vendor financing, right, with a lot of these dot coms. And so it was like, again, it was a virtuous cycle, the growth that these companies were seeing because all of these new startups were happening and they were all being financed with VC capital and was just being burnt, like just lit on fire. Sooner or later, something happened in the year 2000 where one too many banner ads was put on the internet and the whole thing came crashing down. And so it wasn't just the internet startups that failed. It was uh, obviously a lot of these telecom equipment companies and these fiber optic. We've seen this before. I think the big difference is that these sorts of companies, like if they're already modeling what percentage right of their revenue is coming from these areas, it's not great right now. It's not something that these valuations are built on. All that being said, Microsoft trading at about 30 times this year's expected earnings, that is very rich to its history. But to your point, growth at a reasonable price, if interest rates are coming down, then you're going to see more folks pile into these names. You mean more growth at all costs? To me, the GARP is growth at a reasonable price, right? And then if you want to thread the needle a little bit, growth at all costs also makes a little sense too, because again, we saw this early- More risk on. We, yeah, because we saw this early this year when it was perceived that Alphabet was not- in the game, right? Because BARD, their large language model, was not like anywhere, at least the launch was, didn't look like ChatGPT4. It was just left out of the game. Amazon was underperforming a good part of this year. Again, people weren't sure about what their strategy was. But it felt like in the second half started, some of the air came out of, we've talked about this before, out of the AI hype bubble, and we focused on fundamentals. I wonder if we're, especially with the OpenAI Developer Day yesterday, if we're heading back into, and, and again, it's just a simple, more risk on, as you've said, it, it's looking these days. 
if people want to believe that AI story a little more. If, if Microsoft, for instance, is, is able to demonstrate in the next few quarters, and they're not likely to break it out by product, right, about Copilot and the like here, but if we're likely to see like a reacceleration, which goes with, to your point, the reacceleration in their cloud business, right, and you're seeing like these things work well together, then it will justify a high 20s multiple, right, and it will firmly place them in a, at least an investor mindset that these guys have done the early things that they needed to do to make sure that they will not be supplanted by an Alphabet or an Amazon or whatever Apple, like they throw their uh, hat in the ring to. Right. Let's talk a little bit about this Datadog move. Okay, so here's a company. It's a $30 billion market cap company, 80% gross margins, $2 billion in revenues, growing at about expected growth of, let's say, 23% a year this year and next. And what's interesting to me about this, and Guy and I were talking about this a little earlier on one of our other pods, is that three months ago, when they reported their last quarter, the stock gapped down 20%, okay, off of, let's say, poor visibility, fears of deceleration. So the quarter that they just put up here, better than expected, now that's coming off of lowered guidance from the last quarter, and then they're able to guide up nicely, and then you get this 30% pop. It's trading where it was three months ago. You know what I mean? So it's just funny to me. And, and, and again, this company is going to go to gap profitability. I know that's something that is very important to you. And then you can start taking that what looks like a really high adjusted earnings number, and you see it to start to grow with good revenue growth and high margins. And you say to yourself, okay, maybe this should be a $35 billion, $40 billion market cap company trading at, let's call it, grows into a, a high single digits multiple of sales or something like that. But it's just interesting on a day like today, it's able to drag up a lot of these other enterprise names and the like, and it's helping to shape a narrative that maybe things weren't as bad as they seemed about a month ago when the NASDAQ was down close to 10% from its recent highs and many of its large components were down more than that. So we were talking about Datadog and Snowflake, MongoDB, these sort of software analytics companies earlier this year. We showed a chart showing the beneficiaries in the stock market of the mobile platform shift. And first it was like the chips. And that's why we saw NVIDIA really take off earlier this year. But next was the infrastructure to support that mobile shift. These were the actual phones. And there's an argument to be made that these companies, Datadog, Snowflake, Databricks is another one, are, are going to benefit from the generative AI cycle, but they're going to, they come after the chips. But it's an interesting point. You say that it's just back to where it was three months ago, because that sentiment hasn't taken hold. Maybe this is more, again, of a risk on risk on profitable story. Yeah. And I guess it is adjacent to the generative AI story, right? And so if companies are, are starting to test these products and services, they need analytics in and around it to gauge the usefulness of them. And, and so you've been talking about the hyperscalers and, and the cloud growth was one of the first things to see that hopeful benefit of investors. And that's why they were most focused on, let's say, Azure and Google Cloud and, and the like here. But you just mentioned OpenAI. And let's talk about this event that happened this week. And, and the information had a great headline, OpenAI's extinction event for other AI startups. And this is one that I just thought was interesting. And I guess it was over the weekend in front of the, the Monday event, Elon Musk has his XAI and they put out their large language model and it's been training on data from Twitter and he's excited about it. He seems to be one of the only folks, Rock, maybe, right? yeah, maybe some of the all in guys are probably potting like crazy about it. But again, some of the stuff that I was reading, it doesn't seem particularly that interesting. Talk to us about AI startups doomsday. Was this just something? <laughs> and listen, it goes back to 
the point I think that you and I were just both making is like, it's really hard to look back in the history of tech and see anointed players like this at such scale, with such backing, with such valuations. Like, it seems like they can do no wrong at this point because let's say they do have a hiccup in anything. They just go back to the well and they go back to a $2.7 trillion market cap company, which is Microsoft. That is their daddy. And I think any company that's going to dominate a new tech cycle creates an ecosystem. It's not enough, for example, that NVIDIA just makes GPUs. It's creating software that works with the GPUs. This whole system, potentially cloud infrastructure, where companies can go and it's a one-stop shop. With the OpenAI Developer Day, what it essentially announced was an app store for what it calls GPTs, which are customized versions of its chat GPT AI made by third parties. In the same way that when the iPhone was created, it was created along with the App Store, and that was a place for developers to create things. And Steve Jobs and Tim Cook could hold up their phone and say, there's an app for this. Now you can envision ChatGPT saying, there's a GPT for this, for anything that you want to do. And I think what that information article alludes to is this idea of a walled garden where developers are going to go, customers, users are going to go for their AI needs. And that is what made Apple, that ecosystem and Android's ecosystem so effective over the last decade plus. You, you just mentioned something, though, about regulators possibly taking a peek at some of these kind of deals where the, the equity investment and the, the virtuous cycle, as you were calling it, on tech check. It's interesting to me when you think about like the point I just made about the size and scale that these startups, let's call it OpenAI and Anthropic, and there's a handful of other, are operating at. Think about their ability to thwart competition and, and how they're linked up with some of the biggest players in the public markets. And I have to feel like it's at some point, given the push from the White House recently to try to frame some regulation in and around AI, I have to assume because, again, we know that regulators have been very focused on these large, whatever you want to call them, the MAG7 names. Sooner or later, they got to get to this, right? I wish I could share your optimism, but I do not. Lena Khan was in San Francisco last week on a quote-unquote listening tour. She went to Stanford. I saw her speak at Y Combinator. And there's a lot of questions about what she's doing. The criticism of the regulators is that they're fighting past battles. They don't have their eye on what's happening right now, i.e. the huge deals. These aren't M&A deals because they wouldn't, they'd be way too hard to push through. So they're these investments, right, where billions of dollars and they bring revenue back into the companies as we talked about. And she was asked, are you looking at the structure of these deals? And all she said was she's thinking about it. She's not looking into it, but she's thinking about it. And I don't really know what that means, but it tells me we're not going to see action on this anytime soon, at least from the FTC. But who knows, by looking at sort of the core businesses, Google's advertising, Amazon's e-commerce, maybe you get there in a roundabout way. I just feel like that these two names that most investors who who watch CNBC and focused on public markets, they're not going to get a chance to trade these names or invest in these stocks for a very long time. They're also may not get any profit because of the structure of how they're set up is so strange. Also, there's essentially small boards that control profitability after a certain return. And so if these things even go public, it's in the hands of a small group of people. They're set up as nonprofits, ultimately. No doubt. All right, let's, before you get out of here, we got to hit a name that's near and dear to your heart. That would be Uber, which just made a new 52-week high today. Good report, good guide. I think the whole story, and you've been, like, literally from the day at IPO'd, you've been talking about their path to profitability. Way before then, 
it was the first company I covered when I got to San Francisco. And I'll never forget, I went in and they said, why would we care about CNBC? And I thought, one day you're going to go public. <laughs> the reason why I mentioned from the day it went IPO is that it was such a big deal. I think at the time it was like the biggest IPO ever, or at least the biggest tech IPO in market cap terms. And so it dropped like a lug like in, in, in the weeks after or so. And then it really became a story about the path to profitability. And then you and I used to probably poke fun at them because they were coming up with all these acronyms for that they would put in front of profitability. And you would be like, no, real profitability. They're there right now. Like, like they're at that inflection point. And that is probably one of the reasons the dramatic outperformance that you've seen in some other gig names and obviously Lyft, it's just left in the duster. So thoughts on this, the new 52-week highs, firmly profitable, margins are improving year over year. It seems like Dara is delivering. Has delivered. Even when Uber turned profitable, I still harped on that because a lot of that had to do with its equity stakes in other companies and the unrealized gains on that. That's what happened last quarter. Without that gain, it would have been just margin got profitable. But this quarter, I got to give credit where credit is due. They achieved this profitability on the strength of its own business, not those investments in other companies. And what's interesting about that is it could set Uber up for S&P inclusion, sustained net income and cash flow. And that's a big deal. I still question whether this company is a tech company or a utility. But now that they've got an advertising business, I was joking with my executive producer today that every non-tech company can just add an advertising stream and have some software margin somewhere. And that may be what Uber could pull off. Listen, I, I don't think it's probably too dissimilar to what at least Amazon, it's going to be a very different advertising business, obviously, but it's a very high margin business. And if they're able, let's say to use some AI tools, whether they're able to use large language models for from a consumer standpoint, increase productivity, lower certain costs here, like that's the dream of all of this stuff. I'm not making that case, but I'm just saying, and then when you look at a company like this, that's doing the sort of revenue that they are, it, it's probably one of the most used apps on my phone, right? They have my credit card. There's lots of cross selling sort of opportunities. And this may be in the further future, but I will say the big bear case against Uber and Lyft is Waymo. You can, in San Francisco, hail a driverless vehicle and many people would prefer that, right? And I rode in one and I will say I was really impressed with the technology. So I know that they have a partnership with Uber, but when I've used Waymo here, it just completely bypasses the app and made me think that there is no moat for Uber if once robo taxis are really here. By the way, you had a great report on Tech Check. It is, we're going to put it in the show notes. San Francisco is teeming with self-driving cars and it's a mess. I can't wait to get out there <laughs> and, and be part of that. You and I talked a little bit offline, but it was a really great report. So we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. All right, Debo, I really appreciate you taking the time to break down some of the stuff that you have been reporting on over the last week. You know, listen, I'll just say this in closing, this run in the NASDAQ, we started off the pod talking about there's a lot of FOMO going on right now. And you can draw a straight line to rates coming in and people looking to go further out on the risk curve at this point. There's also some of this tendency for seasonality. And to me, I don't really buy much into that. But sometimes people just like ripping things into the year end. And that story from Bloomberg about black BlackRock and, and how they might be placing their bets in some of their models leads you to believe that. I'm taking the other side of it right now. I think that if rates stay firm, okay, and we don't see some of this kind of earnings revisions higher, I think that people might start to think that 2024 is a little too aggressive given the lack of visibility that we have on the macro front and valuations are too high. So that's my two cents there. All right, Debo, thanks so much for joining us on the pod. Stick around for my conversation with Richard Betts and Joe Marchese, the co-CEOs of Casa Comos Brands group, the makers of Comos Tequila. 
Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. There we go. All right. Welcome back to OK Computer. I am joined by Joe Marchese. Many of our listeners know Joe. He's been on the pod on many occasions here, and we've talked a lot about some of the companies that they back at Human Ventures. But this one is really interesting. We are joined by his co-CEO at CKBG. They are the makers of Comos Tequila. That's a brand that we've talked a lot about on the pod. We happen to be drinking it right now. This would be Richard Betts. Richard, Thank you for joining us on the pod today. Thanks for having me. That was like the most formal introduction I've ever had with Richard Betts here, because <laughs> usually it's a lot more casual here. We're sitting around, we're drinking your fine product here. But guys, this is like one we've been trying to do for a while. I'm trying to nail you down as you guys have been launching this brand globally over the last few years it has been difficult, but I think it's really a great opportunity for us to talk about what you guys actually have built over the last few years. It's pretty unique, I think, in the spirits business a little bit, because it it starts with the product, but it really is um, something that's much broader, in my opinion, because what you guys have been able to do, what I've seen in New York City alone, and I know it's broadening out right now, is you've created a really unique community. Is that fair to say here a little bit? I think it's definitely fair to say. That's really the point. You, you got to create, build your constituency and, and build community. Yeah. So Richard, here's the thing. Doing our research here, we went back. I, I didn't realize that you've been on a lot of podcasts. You were actually on the Tim Ferriss podcast back in 2015. True. It's a near three-hour opus, and it goes through your background in great detail. And we're going to put that in the show notes because not that it's not important. We're going to brush over that. We really want to focus on the product that you guys have built, how you're expanding it, the company that you're building, because I think this is really important for our audience. I think a lot of our listeners, they know this product, but it's really, I think, the story of how it came to be is really interesting and how you guys met. And Joe, do you want to take us back for a second about like how, and I've heard you tell this story a little bit, but I think it's really interesting, like how you and Richard had a meeting of the minds, how you <laughs> wanted to create a tequila like none other. That's funny. It's, it's funny you say a meeting of the minds. I don't think I had much of a mind that morning. We had been at another friend's uh, wedding in Greece and we're on Richard's rooftop and I was feeling the effects of not good tequila. And I wondered from Richard... <laughs> Like, why is there no good tequila in Europe? And it ended up being a much broader thing. His answer was because modern luxury hasn't really been applied to tequila. It's not made that way. Everything's made. It's been done this way forever. And that was the spark. And we shook hands that day, not knowing that what it would become. Yeah. And, and Richard, you were a master psalm and, and you've worked at, at some of the best restaurants. You've done like amazing things. And I think anybody who knows the hospitality industry, they know you in a way. What was so interesting about tequila to you? because you've been engrossed in the wine world for decades now, haven't you? I'm a big believer that we should all work at the intersection of our enthusiasms and opportunity. And so I'm enthusiastic about tons of stuff. I could name 8 million things I'm enthusiastic about, but if you plot that as a curve, it never intersects with the opportunity curve. And in those instances, you should just keep those to yourself. They're called hobbies. That's a fun time. But if you can look at the things that you do love that other people also love, maybe that's a place where you should spend your time as an entrepreneur. And so that's how we think about it. And amongst those things... 
I've always held tequila nearest and dearest. I grew up in the desert southwest, and when we were kids, and you, you know, hey, mister, you know this, where you'd get your money together and find some old guy to buy you something. It was frequently actually Bacanora, which is mezcal from Sonora, or tequila, or mezcal. And so there was, a, there was an early affliction, I say. But really, I think the reason that affliction has persisted is because I feel as though all alcohols are fundamentally depressants, except agave. They're uppers in some weird way. And I like to be up. I like to party. I like to dance. Give me a glass of scotch and wow, it's really interesting. I'll Is be asleep in the corner. Is that medically proven in a way or no about agave or no? It, it works just, on me. Just, I know. <laughs> it works for me too. Yeah. I mean, so, so that is, it literally was pointing. What, what did you feel that way about wine in general? Was that like a different experience though? There are many things that tequila and wine share, but I would say for me, the original jump to wine was I didn't want to be an attorney to start with. I had fallen in love with wine and its ability to convey a place, right? The French have this word terroir. And it's the idea that the liquid can speak to you about a people and a place and a geology, a geography, a history, a cuisine, all that stuff. And that's that's the intellectual value of it. And it's really interesting. And it was me, I didn't know anything about wine, but smelled a glass of wine when I was in grad school. And that first smell brought me back to a very specific place, and really specific. And it was, happened years earlier, but the memory was like, I'm looking at you. It was that clear. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And so that was the intellectual hook that got me into wine. But it's one thing to read about it and to serve it, which I did and then became a master sommelier, but a whole other thing to actually make it, right? So once I achieved that, I guess it's a professional milestone, thought, okay, cool, now what? And then, okay, let's figure out how to make it. And then started my first wine company. We ended up making wine on three continents, three countries, sold that company to a public company, but emboldened really, I guess, by the success and the fact that I just like to wake up and have fun is, oh, I figured out how to make wine. Let's figure out how to make tequila and mezcal. And so that's how that you just said it brings you back to a place. And so that place was Greece. You guys woke up, it sounds like, <laughs> yeah. with a nasty hangover. And you said, yeah. let's make some great yeah. tequila that won't yeah. do that. And that, that is an upper. Talk to us a little bit about the inspiration, because I think one of the things that I find so fascinating about the branding, it is like it's guerrilla marketing. Joe Marchese has been walking around New York City <laughs> with a back, a Como's backpack, literally with bottles clanking around in the back and literally putting it in restaurants that we go to and bars that we go to. And people are mesmerized by the bottle at first. I really do believe that. And then talk to us a little bit about the inspiration, because obviously you guys make this in Mexico, but it is inspired from Greece. Yeah, by the Mediterranean more broadly. When we sat on that rooftop and weren't just bemoaning the lack of good tequila in Europe, it was also just the way everyone talks about it, the way everyone thinks about it. And if you look at, so first of all, okay, make what you love, because if no one else loves it, you got to drink it all. Okay, what do we love? Turns out it's tequila that we spend a lot of time working on, aging, you know, it's a very it's like a Rubik's cube with a thousand sides. But if you're going to do that, it costs money. Okay, so it costs money. What what are we looking at here in our category? And they do categorize these things. We're in the ultra luxury space. And if you look at how ultra luxury tequila is consumed, so we know we're going to make great liquid. Um, my wife accuses me of making pretty things. I'm good at that. But if you're going to make great liquid, how are you going to talk about that liquid? Where does that inspiration come from? And if you look where ultra luxury tequila is consumed, it is seldom consumed with chips and salsa and a mariachi band. Right? And I like all three of those things, but that's not where this is drunk. It's drunk in a fine restaurant, in a bar, in a beach, in a day club, a nightclub, by a pool. And that's really different occasion. So the consumer is using it one way, but it's made and messaged in a way that they don't align at all. So we thought, how do we bring the production and the messaging and align that more closely with how people are actually drinking this stuff. So we're actually speaking each other's language, f finally. And that hasn't been done heretofore. I wish we could revisionist history, say we had all this all plotted out as we got it started <laughs> and we knew exactly what it was going to be. But we said 
and, and really I trusted him because I didn't know how to make anything and I don't know how to make anything to this day. I'm learning quite a bit about how he does it, but I still mesmerized each time he describes the new thing that he's doing. So I knew that the liquid was going to be second to none and that was the first part. But then could we make a brand that was different, right? Like there are brands coming out left and right when, and look, we're not slighting anybody else, but they're coming out and then they're all trying to claim the same heritage. It's been done this way for 100 years. It's been done this way for 14 generations, right? And obviously we're not doing that. And that's okay because there's a lot of those and there's some of them are amazing like, like in our category and we love them. But I don't know why when you make a new brand, like we commonly say, you look at Louis Vuitton and you have Pharrell now running creative there. And no one's saying Pharrell is making it not French anymore because he's a black American. They say he's bringing modern luxury to Louis Vuitton and it's amazing to see it. And that was what, what when, when I looked at Richard doing this, you could see that happening in tequila to take care and craftsmanship, but using the most modern techniques and wine techniques and, and inspiration from other places into a liquid. That's what's resonating. And then for the brand to be this different, to be this kind of classic and simple, the name Comos was uh, the cupbearer, mythical figure, cupbearer to Dionysus. So there are still artifacts being discovered from what were Comos processions drunken parties and revelry. So parties so good 2,000 years later, we're still discovering artifacts of it. So that's a bit of an Easter egg that's in it. Well, it's funny. So last night, we were at the Team Rubicon event where you were obviously on the board and I was with Angelo and we were looking at this bottle of XO. This is the luxury product within the Comos family here. And it was in, I don't know if you saw a picture, Richard, it was in this case with this light on it and it looked magnificent, okay? And it was funny. People were coming up to it like it was a museum piece and was part of an auction item that went for tens of thousands of dollars, which was uh, in and around the Comos brand. It was actually brilliant. So good on you guys there. But talk you say that was, wait, sorry, it was good branding? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was really good branding. And the only problem was that the, the only tequila that you could drink there was Casamigos or whatever that garbage is. So I had an hey, Amstel Light like instead. No, they're fine. Oh, should we cut that? Cut that. No, but I, yeah, all right. So let's say, let's talk about this for a second because, so it is in this luxury category. And like you said, there's a lot of competition. When you set out to do this, you guys now have this XO. You have the extra in Yeho. We have. Well, wait, let's back. Let's back up. You should tell them about XO because because yeah. it is totally different. There is no designation. Is it on the market yet? It's or is it about coming. to launch? Yes, yeah. but it'll be hard to find for a while. That bottle, so. just so you know, these are beautiful. And that is is probably the coolest tequila bottle, the, cool, the coolest bottle of spirits I've ever seen in my life. Amazing. This thing is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You should tell them about EXO because EXO doesn't exist. It still says Extra Añejo on the bottle because there is no designation for what we're doing with EXO or what, what Richard's doing with EXO. Yeah, so it's, yeah, as Joe noted, it does say Extra Añejo. That's literally the oldest designation that the, the tequila group establishes for themselves. That's that. But that doesn't mean that it's just a three-year-old tequila, which is what Extra Añejo generally means. We think of Exo as really as extraordinary origin. And so when we got going in Mexico, we bought from the matriarch of one of the families that we work with some of her old tequila that she still had resting in barrels. And older isn't better. I want to be clear about that. It's one of the ingredients that can lead to make something beautiful. But she had been aging it in tequila barrels that previous held tequila but were originally bourbon. And so every time you put something in a barrel, it's going to take something out of it and, and it's going to inform the liquid. And I think if you put tequila in a brand new first use bourbon barrel, it's just going to taste like bourbon, which is totally uninteresting to me. She would put them in barrels that really didn't have a lot to say, which is beautiful because it then had been in there for eight and 10 years. And so it took on a little bit of information over time, but not a ton. At that point, it's like a block of marble. 
and then we can do what we do at Comos, and then we put it in our barrels and do it this way for a certain amount of time. And you put it in this place with a certain amount of temperature, and time and temperature are factors, and what it's held in is another factor. Then we take it out and put it in these other barrels, then another barrel. And like I mentioned, that Rubik's Cube with a thousand sides, and this is really it, where we do our craft, and you add shading and shading, and it's about building something that we think is very complex and very beautiful with great depth. It's analogous to really an orchestra or a chorus as opposed to a solo, right? So you want to build that thing. And it does take time, and it does make something beautiful. And in the end, these are, of all that work and all we've done, we've selected just a few barrels of the thing that we think this is the best thing now. And so it's a one-of-a-kind bottling. I'll tell you this. I think, again, what you guys are doing in the category, it's not celebrity-led. To me, that's the, some of the stuff that just falls really flat. And I think a lot of us, especially in tequila, if you're my age, I'm 51 years old, the last time before I had Comos, I had tequila, was in a shot. And I had too many of them. And the hangovers, like, we kind of lost our taste for it in a way. And then some of us just got into scotch or bourbon. And, and since I've been drinking this over the last few years, I don't have a taste for scotch or bourbon anymore. And listen, good on you guys um, for that. Like, Joe, I want to talk a little bit about you at Human. You guys invest in great humans. You back great humans. You build great products with great ideas and the like here. How has this been different than a lot of the stuff that you guys have been focused on over the last few years? Because Richard is a very unique founder. He is obviously your partner as co-CEO. And I, I think that's a unique role for you too. So talk to me a little bit about the complementary skill sets and what it's like building not just a consumer products brand, but a luxury consumer products brand that has different product market fit than the sorts of businesses that you guys have backed and you work closely with. Yeah. First, first there's the liquor business, like like writ large, is just different than every other industry, especially in the U.S. because of the three-tier system and figuring out. But it's still sales and marketing at the end of the day. And, and the sales and marketing is the background. At Human, one of the things we look at is every single company in our portfolio, the number one expense after people is sales and marketing. I don't care if you're B2B and then it's more sales or you're B2C and it's marketing. There's nothing more of a death trap for companies than you have to keep spending marketing dollars in order to keep growing. And if you stop spending, then you stop growing, right? We, we just had a great board meeting where we're looking at it and saying, look, gross margin is growing, but our expenses aren't following it up because we're building a brand. And I think people have forgotten how to build a brand. And so, that's the virality aspect you mean in some, no, some it, ways? That, but the brand yeah. kind of takes away from the market. Exactly. Like Facebook, Google, Amazon have like just gotten the world into everything's performance marketing. What happens when you do that? Dan, you're selling batteries. You pay me, I'll get you people that want to buy batteries. Oh, you're done paying me? Richard, are you selling batteries? If you pay me, I'll get you. Okay, you're done. Now someone else pay. And they're just sorting demand at the bottom. And that's why the D2C revolution flopped. And I would actually say the actual archetype of a great human is Richard Batts. But beyond that is a master craftsman. You know, I, I made a joke the other day at our all hands, and I've come to like it, is that Michelangelo couldn't paint the top of the Sistine Chapel without an, a very elaborate scaffolding system, right? I like to think I run a scaffolding company now. And that that's the thing is like, there there's immense talent out there, but, but the infrastructure needed to make it into, we are now, we've opened 30 countries, we're all 50 states. The operations, and, and Comos might be special in where it is in the ultra luxury category, but we're launching Superbird, mass market, high quality, with new types of expressions. We're launching Doladira, which is an aperitivo. I mean, we've created a platform that allow, and these are, and there are other artists running those. Meredith Erickson, who has a famous cookbook. CKBG, Casa Comos Brands Group, is the perfect expression of what human wants to be able to do. And that's why it is where I spend my time. It's so important. You also spend your time um, in lots of restaurants with me. And, <laughs> and so I want to talk to Richard a little bit about like how the hospitality industry has, has welcomed 
your products. Here's a great example. I know he's a great friend of yours and you've known him for 20 years, but Ryan Hardy, the delicious hospitality group. And he's got these amazing restaurants here in New York. And on the side of their like outdoor cafe, I think right now is uh, Superbird, but it was Doladira a month ago. He just seems to be a super supporter. I went to a pop-up that he did in Amagansett in August and he came to the table. He knew I was there, but he poured us all a glass of Doladira just to start out. Like, so it seems like you guys are winning the hospitality sector over. When we go to Casa Cipriani, like the four expressions are brilliantly displayed in the middle of every one of their bars. It seems like places that want to exude luxury are really buying into your brand. And it seems like that's part of this sort of virality that's happening also. Look, start by being nice. That's really helpful. People forget how to do that oftentimes in restaurants. Um, particularly in America, set it up as an adversarial situation. And that's not the point. But when you really look at it from a different perspective, working in restaurants helps you have that. But that just goes so far. So now you're in the door, you're friends, that's helpful. But make beautiful things, make things that they'll also love, but things that are useful to them. If we just have, if I just make another schlocky tequila that no one gives, has a reason to care about, it, then Ryan doesn't want to care about it. He might be a great friend. But if, we again, that foundation of, of friendship is honored, and you make something beautiful that's, that his guests will find useful and is really additive to their experience in his place and his business, then it's actually really easy math. It's funny though, Joe knows this, when, when we sit down at like a Four Charles or something and we'll order, let's say five among the six of us to start out, let, let's say a, a Cristalino, they bring the bottle and they put it on the table because they think it looks beautiful. All right, let's talk a little bit about the market, the size of the market and what was attractive. Listen, I get it. You guys wanted to start with a great product, but you also needed to build a business that you thought was going to work too. The spirits market, the growth there, luxury. I know that's something, Joe, that you spent a lot of time thinking of. So tequila is the fastest growing spirit in the U.S. It just overtook to become number two. It's on its way, like the, the projections are that it'll pass vodka at some point, right, to be the largest spirit. I will say that as a marketer, I think there's a bit of a flywheel happening in that you have the success of some tequila brands and then so a bunch of other, whether it's celebrities or just people with a lot of money or people backing come into the tequila space and then what they do is they market their products, which gets more people to try it, whether or not it's good or not, then that reinforces that more people then go and invest in tequila. Richard's been working down there for 20 years and constantly seeing like the agave is growing, the agave is growing and they're like, why? Because there's demand that's just pulling it up into the market. It actually moves public market stocks like when agave prices go up and down, like the, it, it is commodities like orange content and trade futures and trading spaces. Trading places. Trading places. Trading spaces, yeah, trading spaces is the new show. Yeah. So it is a, it's a huge market and that was very interesting to us. But I honestly, we picked it because it's what we drink. We didn't do a spreadsheet to say, this is this place we want to get into. And we picked ultra luxury because that's what we drink as well. Like we wanted sipping tequila and this is that. So Richard, you are a well-traveled fellow, your partner, and you have that State Frisky website, <laughs> which is go-to for me whenever I'm going anywhere outside of New York City. I love um, it. Talk to me a little bit how you think about a brand like this. And again, you just mentioned the ultra luxury, but you come from uh, a, a very humble background. And I <laughs> yeah. think that is like at the core of the thing that you got that you guys are building in a way. This is an aspirational product yep. in some degrees, and it exudes, again, a level of quality and luxury. But as you... And I look at all these inputs in the Stay Frisky website and everything. And please go look at that. We're going to put that in the show notes. It's pretty fascinating. How has like your travels around the world influenced like the product and the culture that you wanted to build around this brand? The travels, I think, are just a big part of being a good human, developing empathy for people all around the world. And that, to me, this is maybe a little obtuse answer, but developing that empathy really 
brings me to a grounded place where I feel as though, yeah, I do come from a very humble place and really felt like I needed to escape it. Not there's anything wrong with it, but I just had different dreams. But the idea is like, how do you develop that empathy and then realize you need to be true to yourself? And again, I'm not sure that's the answer you're thinking you're going to get. Those travels really, once you think about how to walk a mile in another man's shoes, it's a different deal. So then I treasure every moment I get to make the really the best thing. Like I really value that opportunity for craft. The other way I would answer that question is that when I'm traveling, one of the most wonderful things is the, the diversity of food. I love that. And the diversity of drink, that's interesting. But from the business point of view, I think the diversity in drink will, will persist, but the popularity of some of those drinks will diminish. So when Joe and I kick this off, we're like, okay, we think tequila is going to be big in Europe, for example, amongst many other places. And when we first started talking about this, people are like, no way, you guys are crazy. And I said, actually, you're crazy. Let's say Dan Nathan, he's here in New York, he's a Comos drinker, before you were a Macallan drinker. Let's just even go back a few, let's seven years, you're drinking Macallan. You get on the plane, you fly to Paris, you check in at the Maurice. Do you start drinking pastis? Hell no. You, where's my Macallan? And now it's tequila. It's the same thing. You, you're a tequila drinker. You, you fly to Paris, you check in at the Maurice. Boom, I want my Comos. And that's really, we're watching that expand really quickly. And all the people that said, oh no, Joe, Richard, you guys are nuts. They're like, wow, you guys are smart. Actually, you saw something. And it's really, that's travels are helpful for that. Are you guys seeing a through line? So you just relaunched Superbird. And to me, I love what you guys did there. You relaunched this brand. Will you see like a through line between mass market product? In some ways you guys are doing, and I hate to compare you to Elon Musk there, Joe, but what Musk wanted to do when he launched Tesla is start with the highest and most premium electric vehicle and work his way down to something that could be mass market. He would always continue to focus on that beautiful luxury product right. um, and service that audience. But that was what was going to make it available to him or make it a mass market product that they also think is great, that better than anything else on the market. Yeah, I, I don't know a ton about the car business. I understand what you're talking about here, but I would not relate Tesla to the alcohol business in a way that would build something sustainable. Alcohol business, okay, so we have Comos. This is the proposition. It costs 130 bucks just to get into the first expression and it goes up to two grand. If I start introducing things under that label that are $29, $39, what's the proposition of the brand here? That's not how this works. Yeah. You identify, Comos is aspirational. It is special and you, you it costs, right? And so as a consumer, you pay for that and you identify with that. And that's not what you, as that consumer, you don't want to see me do something under the Comos yeah, you don't label want like for something. Like a gateway that's... drug on the way up to Comos. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once, as we see in the alcohol business, if you go down and people trade down, they're never coming back. They're absolutely not coming back. We make Superbird. That's a different proposition. It's a different process. And it's, we think it's actually very special and something. It's also great branding. I want to go back to something you just said. So you said, so many years ago, you're a McAllendrick or whatever. Yep. Okay. So I want to go back to this Tim Ferriss interview from oh, 2015, yeah. which yep. was titled The Tattooed Heretic of Wine and Wine. Whiskey, Richard Betts, <laughs> which is which I thought was really fascinating. Did you even have a twinkle of tequila in your eye back then? Oh yeah, talking, yeah. I had a tequila business at that point. Okay, and oh, a mezcal which you business. Sold. Okay, okay. Yeah. So then, what's different about the company and the product that you sold from the first iteration to what you're doing right now? That's an excellent question. I think we all make mistakes, just don't make them twice. And when, as we talked about with wine, it has this really special opportunity to speak of all those things that we discussed. When I first started making spirits, it was with mezcal. And I really nerded out on this idea of what is mezcal and how it can talk about all these things. And it can. And it remains a nerd out moment. And I appreciate it. But I want to talk to a lot of people. I don't want to just talk to a few people. And so while I think that we 
did amazing things. And actually, our work and the things that we've done there have changed the way Mezcal is regulated. I'm really proud of that work. But that's, the size of that prize remains very small. And I've got a million things I want to work on. And so I was like, okay, this isn't a place where I've done all I can do. And now it's send it on its way. Someone else can be the shepherd of it and that thing. And so with this, it's a much it's just a much different day. Just curious, how many master psalms are there in the world? Because I, I feel like this is something that mm. is a very unique and, and special title here, which you became one and then you actually gave it up, correct? I gave it up. So well, talk to us a little bit about that because it's funny, the vibe in and around luxury spirits right now feels like the vibe of wine 20 years ago. Is that fair to say? I mean, like, it is fair to say. Yeah, it's and, very and so, fair to say. And so why, look at how you went to the top Yep. And then you're like, I'm done. And now you want to build something else up. So what was it about the wine industry that you just are kind of happy to leave in your Yeah. Way? To answer your first question, I think there are about 200 master sommeliers or a few more than that on the planet. I was, I think, 130 something to pass, but I was the ninth person to pass on the first try. Like, it's a tough test if you're myopic about things and you think of it as a game and not a measure of self-worth. That's a great foundation for passing the thing on the first try. It's it's a mindset. And so I didn't do that for a badge on my shoulder. I, was like, I actually got to day one of my job at the Little Nell in Aspen, Colorado. And ostensibly, I'm the wine expert. And I walk in and the guests know more about wine than I did. That's not tenable, right? I'm <laughs> supposed to be helping them. And so that's why I dove into that educational platform. And that's really what it was at the time. As that I got through it and then other people got through it and, it, and there was the movie Psalm and it, we gained all this notoriety. I feel like it kind of lost its way. It shouldn't be about the superstar chef. It shouldn't be about the superstar sommelier. It should be about the superstar diner. You guys are the ones here, patrons that we just get to care for. And somehow that equation got flipped and then there were all these inflated egos and personalities and that was less savory to me. Even though I received a fair bit of adoration, but that's not what motivated me in the morning. And then the organization, why I left, it wasn't that I fell in love with wine. I'm still very much in love with wine. I still make some wine in Australia. But I left because I felt like the organization had lost its way. And it, it didn't take the, I think, proactive stance on social issues, uh, particularly Black Lives Matter at the time that I quit, that were commensurate with my own feelings about how we should take a stand, how we should care, what have you. And that was on the heels of a cheating scandal that shouldn't have been a cheating scandal at all. That They disallowed the results of I think it was 23 candidates because a couple of people cheated. If you pass the bar exam one day, but you know someone down the road cheated, they don't cancel everyone's bar exam, right? So I don't want to spend too much time on that, but it was just, it wasn't being led in a way that felt like it was commensurate with my own personal values. And so when I quit, people freaked out. Yeah. They really freaked and you out. And actually made it, it was a very public sort of thing. I made it very public. The press picked it up. Here's a hot take, okay? <laughs> I hate wine. I hate the culture of wine. I okay? hate that too. No, seriously, because I'm a pretty simple guy. Yeah. Just the, for the listener here, you and I were born in the same hospital in Syracuse, New York, Community <laughs> General Hospital. And we figured that out, yeah. I think, over maybe a half a bottle of Comos a couple years ago. Yeah. And I did not grow up around, my, my parents didn't drink, okay? I drank beer and, and, and the like and as a, a high school kid in, in college, bad liquor and everything like that. And I never developed a taste for wine, but I dine with you and you will take a wine list and you will find an uncommon value That's... for an excellent wine. You, yeah. know, you actually take pride in that. Oh, when yeah. you go to a dinner, Joe, and I know you've been at these dinners, probably hundreds of these dinners, where it's like a dick measuring contest <laughs> to find, the, the, you know what I mean, the yeah. fanciest wine at kind of the highest price. Oh, yeah. And then the conversation interrupts our dinner conversation for 10 minutes 
about the wine. Yeah. And I literally will look at the people I'm with. And I'm hosting the dinner and that person says, I got the wine. You know what I yeah. mean? I literally, I, I'm just saying, like my, I, I want to freak that one out. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that culture sucks. And I agree so what you. I love about how we hang out at places that this is like the center point of what we are drinking. It's yep. very approachable, although it's very high end and it's beautiful on the table and the like here. So I just wanted to say my, that's my rant. <laughs> but I agree with you. It's just become fetishized like anything else. It's watches or it's fancy cars. And regretfully, it's actually to the detriment of wine. That same sort of enthusiasm has found its way into wine because then you get exactly what you described. And the sum with it, you know, the farmer who made that wine probably got paid five bucks for the bottle, not 5,000 that it gets traded up for. And that, that's, that sucks. That's not the point. Yeah. But Joe, to be fair, okay, so we just talked about XO. Okay, this is an ultra luxury product. And that is the thing. That is not the cornerstone. It's not the bedrock of the CKPG of the Como's brand or whatever. So I just want to be really clear about that. Yes, you guys have produced something that is exquisite and probably very much deserves that price point and the accolades that it's already gotten, I know. But this is, believe it or not, it is at a very accessible price point for a luxury brand because you don't have a bunch of reality TV stars like hawking the thing. Is that fair? Yeah, no, look, the XO was meant to be something incredibly special and limited. And it's a one of one, right? Richard talks a lot about how he might make something else, but this is it for this liquid. This XO is going to be this XO. It was the Rob report that said it was the new standard in luxury tequila. But in reality, it's the Rosa tequila and the Cristalino and the Reserva. And to some extent, the extra and Yeho, they all have their own expression, literally, and they all have their own occasion for one, but they're all approachable. People can have that bottle and they can put it on their, on their bar and they can, you know, use it afterward. It becomes a conversation topic, which by the way, the whole point of this is back to hospitality. Going back to something you said earlier about why is the hospitality industry embracing? The first thing people ask when they see a new tequila is like, who's the celebrity involved in it? And we've said from the beginning, the liquid is the celebrity and the bottle is the celebrity. When they scratch a little bit deeper and they say, but who made it? And I, I tell them about Richard and again, not to give him a big head, but they, every the hospitality industry knows, oh, this is made by one of us. This is made by someone who makes things for us. And that is, that's a great thing to do. And then they scratch a little bit deeper and they go, oh, wow, you're using different techniques. So there's just so much substance under the brand. And that's why it holds up. I've told many people that I've sold a lot of things in my life, but you can only ask for favors one time, like we were talking about. But if you sell something that is of benefit to the person you're selling it to, then they ask you to come back again and again. And so this is, there, there's probably no better example of yeah, it. Yeah, I, I just want to say one thing, and I think Joe knows this. We started our podcast in uh, January of 2021, so we're going on our third year, and we've been sending bottles to our guests of this. And again, we have a lot of very fine sponsors who pay to be associated with our brand. You guys are not one of them. What I'm saying to our listeners right here is this may sound like a love fest. It is because I love the people. I love the team that you guys have put together and I love the product. And I'm really proud to say when someone does us a solid and comes on our podcast, we're saying that was important to us. And this is something that's important to us. So this is not a paid um, <laughs> infomercial by any means. Yep. I want to be really clear about that. All right. Before we get out of here, I want to talk, you, you mentioned your values, Richard, and I've, I know your values. I know Carla's values. I know Joe and Christie's values. You guys are so generous and back so many great causes. And I think a lot of our listeners know that about you and Christy. I want to talk about you and Carla and you guys just launched uh, as a team, you launched the Comos Foundation. And so talk to us a little bit about that. It's very new, correct? Yeah. yeah. And, and so tell us some of the, the focal points of that and what you guys want to achieve with that. Look, you got to do good while you're trying to do well, right? That's, I think, should be our credo every day we wake up. And I think it's also really important to, to do good in the places you're actually working, right? So this actually is born out of my work in, in Oaxaca, 
right? So when I go start making mez mezcal, like people say, why you? Why do you, as a white güero, white guy, get to come down here where we have this 600-year-old tradition to start making things? I'd like to make them too. Um, I have some ideas. Maybe we can make things better. And we did that both in the production, but then also environmentally, it's a big deal. So for every bottle of this, right? And this could also be vodka or whatever. For every bottle of spirits, there's 10 times that liquid volume of actual waste, right? And then there's, in the case of agave, there's also all this fiber, right? It's, it's a plant and you use the plant and then there's all this fiber. And all that just was getting poured into the ecosystem. It's highly toxic. It's oxygen starved. It's acidic. It's just terrible for it. And so when I looked at it, like, well, this isn't making things better, right? There's been waterways that people used to drink out of they can no longer drink from. And you're in the middle of nowhere in, in the Sierra of Mexico and the water's polluted. That's just strange. Mm -hmm. So I thought, like, how do we fix this? And I grew up, the first schoolhouse I went to in, in Tucson, Arizona, had an adobe building there. And so adobe, for those of you that don't know, is one of the oldest bricks humans have made, particularly in Mexico in the desert southwest, that's basically mud and hay. You dry it, you have a brick, and then you can build houses and buildings. And I thought, okay, why don't I do the same thing? But instead of using water to make the mud, let's use this liquid, the, the, the byproduct, to make the mud. And instead of hay, let's use the agave fiber. And so it took pounding against, heads against the wall for a while, but we figured out how to actually make the perfect brick out of this stuff. And it was amazing. So all this trash that was going to the river, we turned into bricks. What do you do with the bricks? You build schools, you build houses, all for free. Build cafeterias, whatever it is that the community needs. And through Sombra, which was my mezcal brand, we rebuilt 22 houses that fell in an earthquake, what have you. So point now is that I no longer work there, but we brought what we developed to tequila, where the back, this is very back of the napkin math, if every tequila producer did this, what we're doing, you could literally build a home for every single person in Mexico. Of course, plenty of people don't need homes, but it tells you the scale of the waste. And so what we're doing, and this actually, this month, we're breaking ground on a schoolhouse and a home, and it'll be all made just from our waste. It's insane that you're able to do that. And so we have really grand ambitions for it. And again, tequila's so much bigger to really scale the work of the Comos Foundation. That's amazing. Listen, as I just said, I love the team. I love the product. I love your mission. And, and I think this is a, a great addition to the growth that you guys are seeing. And I'm sure a lot of folks will benefit from that. So Richard Betts, Joe Marchese, co-CEOs of CKBG and the makers of this very fine product. Thank you guys for joining us on OK Computer. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Dan. Thanks. Cheers, buddy. Thanks. <laughs> Cheers. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.